This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I've not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by, and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. As always, cheers, nice one. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. Sup everyone, how you doing? I am in London, it is the 13th of July, it's a Wednesday and I'm warm because we are going through what people are commonly calling a heatwave, but as we like to call it, an effect of climate change and climate crisis. But seriously, it's very warm. Um, Today's actually one of the cooler days. It's only 26, 27 degrees here in London. Um, This weekend, luckily I'm not here. I'm at Global Bird Fair in Rutland, but in London's going to be 36 degrees. It's also going to be 36 degrees next week. Um, So I will, if you don't hear from me, if no one hears from me next week, can you check in? Because there's a very high chance I'm crying in the shade somewhere. Um, I've had three ice lollies today. I hope you're all well. Um, I'm very much looking, uh, looking forward to being at Global Bird Fair this weekend, 15th, 16th and 17th of July. I'm there recording um, quite a few shows across the weekend. If you're attending, please pop down and say hello. It would be an absolute pleasure to meet some of you that listen to the podcast. But let's get moving on to some positivity because it's been a weird old week for us in the UK, what with uh, the climate crisis and with our government or lack of. So... Let's go on to 60 Second Nature News. Um, as always, for Nature News, uh, bits of Nature News. I can't think this heat is destroyed. <laughs> oh, God. Right, come on, Ryan. Let's try this. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, 60 Second Nature News in 27 degrees heat, and I'm sweating, which is more information than you needed. Let's go. One, two, three. The Royal Thai government announced there'll be no new licenses for bottom trawlers in Thailand. No more registrations or licenses and vessel owners will have to scrap their vessels overseen by a government official to which they can then apply for compensation. The government are also offering vessel buybacks of which 541 trawlers are included costing up to 30 million US dollars which are being treated as a priority. All of this to lower the fleet size fishing in the surrounding oceans. Dr. Andrew Digby, a conservation scientist for endangered birds, tweeted to announce that after three years of decline for the kakapo, a large flightless parrot, the population is now on the up. With chicks now entering juvenile stage, which is about 150 days, they can now be added to the population, which is up to 211 from 197 only last month. And finally, a bit of different nature news, kind of, but I am happy to say that Into the Wild will have its London premiere screening of Beyond the Trigger on Thursday the 8th of September. 
And if you would like to attend this screening, which will include a Q&A panel after the show, followed by drinks, of course, then email intothewildpod at gmail.com. There are limited seats available, and these will be given out on a first-come, first-served basis, and more info will be sent to you in a reply. And guys, that's the end of 60 Second Nature News. Exciting things going on around the world, especially with the ending of bomb trawling in, around Thailand. That is that is some good stuff. Um, and of course, I threw in a Beyond the Trigger update. Um, I threw it in because I'm excited about it. 8th of September. That's our first screening. If you would like to come along, drop us an email. Um, like I said, we've got limited seats, but I'm going to try and pack it out. And I would love some of you lot that have been following the progress to come along. It was obviously, it will be in the evening, but more information will be sent to you as well. On to today's show. Today, I am talking to writer and filmmaker Florence Wilkinson um, about two things. One, about her new book, Wild City, and also about finding wildlife within a city and an urban environment. Myself and Florence had a great time chatting about this kind of stuff because not only are we both Londoners, but we only live about 15 minutes down the road from each other. (laughs) So there's some very London-centric references in this episode. I do apologise if you're not in the London borough. Um, But it was lovely to chat to her about um, where the drive came from for the book Wild City, what the kind of species she spoke about in there, where she got to go around the UK to find some of these kind of unique populations that we find in cities where animals have managed to survive, thrive in challenging or very unique circumstances. The water voles was a particular highlight of mine. Her book is also available, which I I say later on in the show, the link is in the write-up of this episode. Um, And it is a really good read. I highly recommend it. It's um, engaging, it's fun, it's interesting. It's a bit weird in places with some of these animals. And it was lovely to get to have this opportunity to talk to Florence about the journey of writing this. So ladies and gentlemen, this is Wild City with Florence Wilkinson. Florence, welcome to Into the Wild. It's lovely to be talking to you whilst you're not in London, and I am, and it is very warm. <laughs> How are you? Yeah, I, I'm great, actually. For once, I'm quite quite pleased not to be in London and to be on the Cornish coast where it's actually quite cool. So, <laughs> Yeah, it's, um, I've had three ice lollies today, and for the listeners, it's only just one o'clock. So that's quite a lot. I mean, I should probably be eating fruit and drinking water, but I've had three round trees fruit pastels, and I am dropping their name for a sp- sponsor potential. Um, but I've had. Three I mean, of them. whatever work, whatever works for you. <laughs> you like we stop talking about this, right? Whatever works, just crack on. Um, super excited to have you on the show. Uh, the first and obvious question is: Do you want to start by telling us who you are and what is it you do? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a writer. I'm a journalist. I'm a filmmaker. I'm not an expert when it comes to wildlife. I just love it. Um, I always have. And I guess I would class myself as a Londoner. I was born in London. I was born in the Royal Free in Hampstead in North London. Nice. Yeah. Um, I grew up in North Essex. So um, also a bit of an Essex girl, I guess. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I see myself as a Londoner now. It's very much my home. Um, and I feel like it's no real coincidence I ended up back in North London in Camden, not yeah. that far from where I was born. So um and yeah i love the city and i love nature in equal measure lovely so i've got to ask you if you were born in that area and you're back in that area what is your i was gonna say london generic but let's let's keep it more specific to where you are because you're very close to where i am Mm. what's your favorite area to go and spot wildlife around here hampstead heath 
Is it hamster tea? <laughs> yeah. See, I'm getting to the point where I'm. I don't want. To, I don't want these words to come out of my mouth. I'm getting to the point where I might be a little bit done. No, because you I can't be. Every, yeah, but I know. Oh, but Florence, I, I, I walk there every day because of the dogs, and then I go there. It's my nearest space, and lockdown. It was. I, it was all I could go to. So maybe I'm just. I need somewhere else, and then I can go back. Do you know what I mean? I always feel like I'm cheating a bit by saying Hampstead Heath because it's kind of this quite unique, um, preserved bit of ancient habitat fragment yeah. kind of in the city. So um, in some ways, perhaps by saying that, I'm cheating because, um, you know, in my book, I try and show people super gritty urban places where they can also see stuff. But I, my heart is on Hampstead Heath and I, I can't deny it. Yeah, so. I, do, I do love it. Like, I, I do like showing people around it and stuff because there is, you can see, I mean, the flowers up there are incredible. Mm. For flower mm. wildlife and stuff is, is incredible. Um, one place I really like is the canals. Walk alongside the canal, especially if an evening in summer with the bats. So I've been living right just off the Regent's Canal um, for years now, actually. I lived on one side of it and now I live on the other side of it. Um, and yeah, I do love the canal as well. I, I, see, um, I see the cormorants kind of drying yeah. their wings. I see uh, we, have, we have a lot of bats, actually. In my estate, we have a lot of pipistrels that I see flying nice. around. Um, including when they're meant to be hibernating, actually. They're out most of the year and I really enjoy it. <laughs> it is, oh, but I find that with London wildlife. Don't you find that it's just really hardcore wildlife that doesn't need to do things that other populations or other species need to do? Mm, mm. It's like, oh, we're Londoners. Like They've all got like flat caps on and like spitting on the floor as they're moving around. And they're all proper <laughs> hardcore. Like, um, What is your favourite thing then about the natural world? What draws you into it? Um, so that's... I guess that's quite a tricky one because there's just so much to choose from. But I think for me, it's got to be that kind of sense of wonder that you can get from the natural world. Mm. Because I think we live in a world full of distractions and I'm pretty terrible for this. Yeah. I'm always on my phone. I can't sit and watch something without looking on Twitter at the same time, um, watching Love Island every night at the moment. And then <laughs> I'm on Twitter like, what does everyone else think of this? Like, this is absolutely terrible. I love popular culture. But yeah, um, yeah so I think we all become so easily bored and we're also kind of constantly seeking new experiences. But the natural world is one place where... It, it kind of has the power to snap us out of that, I think. And whether that's my partner, he really loves going walking. Um, so he likes to go to Wales and climb up a mountain and do his thinking up there. Um, or that's me sitting in Grace watching. I mean, I can just sit and, and watch Flying Ants all day as I was the other day on <laughs> Flying Ant Day. So <laughs> I, I know what you mean. I oh mean, my I... God, though. Do you get like, oh, did, did you, when you said you saw them the other day, was that when you were in London? No, in Cornwall, actually. I was oh. in Cornwall for Flying Ant Day this year <laughs> there was so florence everywhere on archway road you know when you go at that time of year where like i don't know if it's pollen or seed pods coming down from the trees and it's all like mm. in the sky that's what it was like but flying ants it was <laughs> everywhere i was like damn this is a year so I went out to film them and and I think I picked up about four in my hair just during like that 30 seconds. <laughs> yeah, we but, had them um, in the house. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing is though, I mean, I'm probably a bit unusual because I'm as fascinated by the little things as the bigger things. Yeah. But um, but yeah, so so I'm kind of happy watching and I'm happy watching something that I've seen a thousand times before because it tends to do something different every time. So that's yeah, the that's thing about true. nature, isn't it? 
<laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm similar with you of that because the other thing is I'm really bad at ID and I cannot remember names. I'm te- where, it doesn't matter if it's names of films, shows, celebrities, people, animals. Does it, I can just not remember them, but I know visually if I've seen it before. So I kind of come up with my own common names for things. That for me is like that's where my enjoyment of seeing the same things or same bits again is to see if I can try to remember what it's actually called. So if I even if it was like a marbled white butterfly, I can watch it again and again and again just purely on the basis to see let's see if i can remember his name and i'm not allowed to move on until i do (laughs) i i'm the same actually i'm i'm terrible at remembering and and iding and um actually i think kind of one of the key things that i wanted to do with my book um and that i'm keen to do in general is is to make it more accessible um and you know this idea that you you don't have to know everything you don't have to know every name and um i think that's one of the nice things about urban nature and the idea of looking at things that are on your doorstep actually is that accessibility and i think i think it can feel a little bit obtuse sometimes or people mm. can feel like um nature isn't for them and particularly people in an urban environment actually so i think it's a really important point so we're talking about your book today and a topic that i as a city lad hold very close to my heart and that's urban wildlife so let's start by asking you this question what drew you in to write about and this may be an obvious question considering where you've grown up and stuff but what drew you in to write about urban and city wildlife well you say that but actually i guess although i was born in london i grew up in kind of semi-rural north essex so oh, yeah, um, of course. yeah yeah so and and growing up um i had a lot of wildlife all around me we had a big garden i remember my parents waking me up in the middle of the night when i was little to see a family of hedgehogs crossing our lawn oh my um, God, amazing. yep yep <laughs> um we saw tawny owls in the woods near the hat near where we lived we saw um common lizards kind of basking on railway sleepers um and i grew up with this menagerie of animals all around me so had pet giant rabbits that kind of tunneled under our entire garden we had <laughs> we had dogs cats rats mice a parrot <laughs> ducks just, oh my god <laughs> did you so live I, on a giant ark <laughs> yeah i mean it sounds a bit like that now doesn't it <laughs> so that's kind of So I I grew up in that environment, but actually when I moved to the city, obviously I still had that love of nature. um, And I quite quickly started finding those places where you can kind of connect like Hampstead Heath or, um, or the canal. Um, And, um, and I, I realized that not only is there still plenty to see, actually you can have different experiences with nature in the city. So growing up, I had never seen a red fox up close. Well, living in London, obviously I see them all the time. Um, I'd never seen a cormorant up close either. So you can kind of have different encounters, I think, with wildlife in an urban environment. But I think for me, the most important thing is I really want to get people interested in what's on their doorsteps because I think... A lot of people think you have to go to far-flung places to experience nature. You need to go on safari or take a boat down the Amazon. And, um, you know, I, I've i done some of those amazing things myself. Um, I've not been on safari, but I have been to the Amazon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, don't get me wrong, it, it was amazing and I'm super privileged. But actually, firstly, that's not very good for the planet. And I think we're all more and more conscious of that kind of flying around all the time. It's not a good idea. But also I think that for people to truly connect with and care about wildlife, um, they need to start at home. And if we want people to conserve it, we have to get them interested in it and show them that it's there in the first place. 
And most people actually live in urban environments. So eight out of, I think eight out of 10 of us now live in um, urban environments in the UK. So it's about kind of showing people that there's so much that you can see and experience on your doorstep. Yeah, it's it, especially when you said about the foxes there. I think it's something that living in London for so long, you for, you forget they're there. Like if someone, I'm trying to think, someone someone from Lincolnshire came to London and would hear that at night outside your house, you'd be concerned. Like, mm-hmm. do you know what I mean? It, it would feel bizarre. But as Londoners, we're so used to it. Like you know, I, I walked the dogs around the block last night for their nighttime wee and then i saw a fox right up close and i was just like oh fox stand to one side let it go around it was so (laughs) blasé about it yeah but then when i was on richmond park the other day and i was walking through the fields we saw a fox jumping in front of us and it was it felt completely different Mm. like to see that same animal in a different environment which is it's a good example of what you bring up there is like in in an urban environment wildlife you're seeing it from a different perspective you're seeing Mm. it like you said closer up you're seeing it do different things as well you're seeing it surviving in different ways or living in different habitats you wouldn't see or you would not expect it to thrive in as well um that's what i think that's one of my favorite things about seeing wildlife here and also that it's just this sounds wrong to people but it's actually easier do you not find it easier to find wildlife in london Yeah, it is easier. I think, and you know what? I think people have this idea that the countryside is the place that you go to for wildlife. But actually, first off... Not this country. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and first off, this is our own kind of imagined boundaries. Nature, you know, wildlife doesn't think, oh... Hang on, I should I should move aside because this is a city, so I, I'm not meant to be here. I better get back into the countryside. That's yeah. that's not how it works. But secondly, I think you know the the reality is, and it's a sad reality, but but the reality is that a lot of the so-called countryside is actually really quite inhospitable to wildlife. You know, we've got industrial farming, pesticides, yeah. monocultures, and um, there was a recent study that actually showed that hedgehog populations, for example while they're continuing to decline um, in the countryside, they seem to be stabilising or perhaps even increasing in urban settings. So It's amazing, um, isn't it? And I mean, I'm not here to say um, the urban <laughs> environment is perfect for wildlife and everything is fine and dandy. Um, very much not so. And, in you know, in some ways, it's a sign of kind of how poor and depleted our countrysides become. Yeah, yeah. But... I would say that our urban environments offer a lot of potential and, and um, I think there's not enough awareness of that. I think I think someone told me that we've got in the UK the biggest deer population now since records began and they're moving further and further into the cities. So I went to Edinburgh um, mm. to look for raptors for my book, but I found out while I was there that the deer are going right into the city centre now. And really? in London, you've got deer coming in. You know, people think of the deer in Richmond Park, but obviously, and I wrote about them as well, but that's a sort yeah. of semi-wild population in that it's kind of contained on this like huge island that is Richmond. Yeah park um, and they have a cull etc but you've got deer coming in as far as finsbury park for example which i find really fascinating really? yeah yeah so and how do they get into finsbury park i don't know they're just going for wireless festival <laughs> maybe they go along there's that lovely walk actually that you probably know called the parkland walk maybe they oh yeah I don't know, maybe they're migrating along that there's a green corridor well, they but, might be mm, but it's, but it's... <laughs> oh. maybe from ali pali could no, they be. wouldn't be there on... Oh, God. 
But this is this is what we Florence. This is the thing with London. Mm. You forget how many of the green spaces are actually connected in some way. Very <laughs> corridors, places, aren't there? Um, I think you might have answered it with your fox uh, bit, where you said like you're getting closer to different bits of wildlife. Mm. But I was going to ask you, what's your favourite thing about looking or learning about wildlife within a city? I guess there are sort of two ways of answering that question. In that. One of the things I love is that there are species that everyone knows are there, but people don't know that much about and don't stop to think mm. about. So pigeons, for example, um, I think that they are one of the most overlooked species we have. Yeah. Um, they sort of blend into the brickwork or become part of the pavement. People don't mm. notice them at all. It's as if they don't even exist unless they're like on people or directly in their way <laughs> yeah people see them as litter let's be honest they just yeah. see them like who's not cleared up the pigeons <laughs> right right exactly but they're super interesting and i find when i talk to people about pigeons and i say you know did do you know just how incredible their navigational abilities are? Do you know how many lives they saved in the First World War? Um, and they've done all these mad experiments on pigeons as well, where they will take them in a blacked out van 300 miles away and they'll still find their way home. They've hung... I'm serious. they've, they've committed a crime. They have done this. They have hung little magnets from their legs to see if they can confuse them, to see if it's like the magnetic forces that they're using. They still find their way home. They have put little goggles on them that blur Jesus. their vision and they still point, find their way home at what point do we as a species go i think they're just really good at navigation stop putting them through the, the wash right i think they should put them in like a vacuum i mean poor pigeons it's really unfair <laughs> the first bird in space and they still made it back <laughs> right the point is they are so good at navigation it's amazing it's really fascinating and they're they can recognize faces and they've been proven to show empathy so what an amazing oh. species and most people do not know this about pigeons so yeah so that'll be kind of my first way of answering your question but the second is it's kind of fascinating that there are these species that people just don't believe that you would find in an urban environment so peregrine falcons for example yes. um when I told people I was going to look for peregrine falcons, they confused them with those Harris hawks that pest controllers use to chase away the pigeons. No one can believe that there are peregrine falcons just kind of flying above our cities. And yet there they are in the kind of grittiest, you know, they're, they're one of the species that can, I guess, thrive in the most urban environments because they'll treat a tower block like they would a cliff ledge and they've got plenty of food because there's loads of pigeons so <laughs> well that's the thing i was going to say that's also a prime example of what one species can do because they, that's yeah. had a good impact on london in regards to pigeon and especially when we look at the time we're in now with avian mm. flu and stuff and how mm. quickly that can spread among high density populations you know whilst obviously london will always have a lot of pigeons but in the area like trafalgar square where it used to be chocker block and mm. like controlling that and then also adding in species that hunt on that it's really kept the population under some form of control you know what else the peregrines in london are eating oh my god what were you gonna say small dogs no no not that okay. bad <laughs> <laughs> my what, dog what better watch, watch out she's pretty small um no they are eating the parakeets <laughs> good whoops i mean yeah no but that is good i mean I love the parakeets, but as you can probably tell, I love everything. Um, yeah. <laughs> I love rats. Yeah, they're not special. <laughs> I love rats. I love mice. I'm even interested in mosquitoes. So um, Yes, that was a... <laughs> yeah, we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> but and, and, and actually, for me, the parakeets are kind of this 
real embodiment of multicultural London and this yeah. kind of melting pot city that we live in. Um, and I realise that they come with a lot of problems, as do a lot of invasive species, but um, I have a fondness for them. But I also think, you know, that... I, I don't have a problem with the peregrines eating them either. That no, sort of thing. God, no. That, that's just you know, mm-hmm. if they, it's that kind of thing of if we if we want them here, they have to live here. And guess what else yeah. lives here? Peregrine falcons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. But um, apparently, they they have found um, someone at the London Wildlife Trust was telling me that they'd found rows of little beaks. So. <laughs> That's how they know. <laughs> Lovely. Okay, bit, that got quite sinister. <laughs> yes, yes, I'm afraid so. Yes. Oh, that's, is it is awesome. Where have you seen them in London? Where is it city centre you've seen them? The peregrines I have seen. So um, there is a pair just off Holloway Road, which I think is incredible. Because um, I was standing there in the summer and I, so I, one thing about me is that I never dress appropriately for going out and looking for nature. Um, it's just not... Who I am, I've always always dressed inappropriately. I I didn't own um, a rain jacket until about two years ago. My mother used to display. I always wear the wrong shoes, and and so it's it's a good thing that I'm into urban nature. Although I have been known to kind <laughs> yeah. of go for hikes in in flip flops or whatever. But so I'm standing on the Holloway Road wearing a little sundress with a pair of binoculars, looking up at this tower block, and I got some really funny looks. And quite a few people stopped and they were like, "What on earth are you doing? What are you looking um, at?" Yeah. Yeah, and I said, I said, well, there's a pair of peregrine falcons, um, and um, their babies are just about to fledge. So I wanted to see if they'd made their fight. Whereabouts do they nest? There's this building. It's London Metropolitan University, so they nest at the top of there. So right um, by the station, Holloway Station. Yeah, yeah, right by the station. Exactly. You know. Uh, but there's also a pair on um, the House of Commons. I don't know if they're still there, but there's historically been a, a pair on the Tate Modern. There's a pair on St Pancras Station. And they're not just in London either, because, um, yeah, in my book, I travel across the UK and this is very much not just a London thing. So I went to see all kinds of di- different raptors in Edinburgh. Edinburgh almost feels like cheating. It's just such an incredible place and there's <laughs> so much to see. Edinburgh has peregrine falcons, it has buzzards, it has ke- it has rave ravens it has everything so um yes um but yeah and you can get them in manchester lots of cities across the uk basically and now let's talk about some of the animals you talk about in your book so you go from everything from foxes bats mosquitoes which you were definitely going to be talking to me about uh, voles <laughs> suburban red squirrels where were they where are the suburban red squirrels so they are in so it's technically not a city it's a town called formby in merseyside so outside oh. liverpool Nice. Yeah, they're really interesting because they are, I think there's only two populations of urban red squirrels in the UK. Um, one is in Aberdeen and the other is in Formby. But the the interesting thing is there is no reason why red squirrels can't succeed in an urban environment except for grey squirrels. And I'm not here to badmouth grey squirrels either because I'm fond of them too and I've grown up in areas where we don't have red squirrels and I think that grey squirrels are quite often, they're quite often that sort of first touch point that children have with a wild mammal and you can see kind of how much they light up when they look at them. And Yeah, um, perhaps... I think that's something to be cherished and hold on to, definitely. Exactly. For me, with things like that, and I'm sure I think you'll probably agree, and people listening is that you can take an animal like the grey squirrel and love it because it is undoubtedly cute. It's mm. a, a very successful animal; no one can argue. And 
and can thrive. But if we can separate that animal and look at the nature away from it and go, what has it done and what needs mm. to happen? Like you said, the red squirrels and whether it's tree plantations or kicking out nesting birds and stuff like this, then what can we do in between to help mitigate that? So it's kind of like we, we can love the animal and we do, but we also need to recognise the problem. But I do agree, it's one of those first mammals you see as a kid, isn't it? Do you know, I think it's really complex because I loved seeing the red squirrels in Formby and the idea that we might lose them is kind of heartbreaking. But on the other hand, part of me thinks, well, after all this meddling we've done as humans and all the destruction, we're then there kind of trying to rid ourselves of the few species that are actually succeeding in this inhospitable world that we've created. And I find myself very conflicted. I'm glad that I don't have to make any of those decisions because um, (laughs) when I was in Formby, (laughs) so part of the way that they've been so successful in Formby, and I guess it helps that it's an urban environment actually, is that they've kind of enlisted the people of the town who absolutely love the red squirrels. You know, you've got kind of shops named after them and everybody feeds them and there's this like real passion for them the locals have got the options they can either kind of catch and dispatch any gray squirrels themselves so um, they can capture them and kill them if they want or they can capture them and get someone else to kill them or they can just call someone when they see them um, and that person will come and deal with them like like another emergency service (laughs) yes basically yes but you know what if it were me i could not sign the death warrant for a grey squirrel I just couldn't do it if I saw one in my garden I'd probably just look at it and be like shh buddy yeah shh, do you know what this is I couldn't rough... do it yeah I don't <laughs> think I could but it's all it's nice to hear that as soon as people value wildlife look what happens the percentage of red squirrels goes up well that's true that's true and actually that's one of the reasons why they think that hedgehogs are doing better in urban environments because mm. there has been this brilliant huge campaign to get people to care about the hedgehogs on their doorstep and actually do something about it and it's people in urban environments who've been doing this and becoming these like wonderful hedgehog guardians and it looks like actually that work that all those people have been doing is paying off so again it shows you that kind of untapped potential in an urban environment as well yeah absolutely so out of all the animals you spoke about in your book which i should so i haven't even said the title of your book that's really bad i should have said this at the beginning in your book wild city <laughs> what uh, what was the animal that stood out the most for you so it's a really tricky one because i love them all but maybe I, I think it would have to be the water voles you know in glasgow because they are just so unusual and it's just such an extraordinary story. So the the waterfalls in Glasgow are living in the most extraordinary places. They're living in an estate, um, quite a deprived estate, one of the most deprived estates in Glasgow that is was notorious for things very much other than water voles for a long time. Um, <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be brilliant if it was a rundown estate but was known for water voles at the beginning. No, I know. <laughs> Um, so it's had quite a difficult history, actually. Um, and there's a lot of poverty in Glasgow. And and actually, that might be one of the reasons that the water voles um, are taking over some of these areas, because they stopped cutting the grass in some of them. Oh, my God, that is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. But it's fascinating because there's no water there. I was going to say that. I was going to say, are you about to tell me that they live in somewhere with no water? Yeah. So I call them the non-water voles um, <laughs> because there's no water. 
In the UK, this is pretty much unprecedented. So there are other parts of Europe and the world where you find water voles living without any water. So it's not completely unprecedented, but we don't really have any other examples of it in the UK. And the other mad thing is that we've got an animal here that is seriously, critically endangered in this country. And yet in Glasgow... (laughs) They're everywhere. So when we went looking for them, we're basically tripping over their burrows. Really? And and the brilliant thing is that because they're protected, it, it brings up a really interesting conundrum as well. Because they're protected, you can't mow or do anything within kind of 10 metres of one of their burrows. But they're burrowing up everyone's gardens. And there's this, you know, you can't really tell people that they can't ever cut their own lawn in their garden. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and the really funny thing is that the council, so the council have been brilliant, but the council... They'd find another water vole burrow and they would have to back off by 10 metres. So they'd back off with the mowing and then the water vole would, you know, they'd pop up that, follow, kind of follow the the path of the council. So they'd then pop up 10 metres further. (laughs) And so the council were retreating and retreating to the point where they couldn't mow any of the area. And then, you know, you've got a football pitch and you've lost your entire football pitch. So, yeah, it's quite a difficult one to know how to handle it when, you know, they're doing so well in these tiny, unexpected pockets. There's another bit of Glasgow that's just this little scrubby park with a kind of beaten up children's play area and, yeah, an old football pitch next to a school um, with some shops and road around it. And there's waterfalls everywhere. <laughs> and but you no can water. just watch them. No water. And there they are just kind of popping up, eating some grass, popping back down again. And it's bizarre, but wonderful. <laughs> I mean, what a thing. Yeah. What a thing. See, we're restoring all this habitat which is a good thing. Mm. And the animals are going, what are they doing? We're fine over here <laughs> in the kids' play park. <laughs> exactly. It's brilliant. I think it's such a good example of how nature is, is going to defy our expectations, whatever it is that we do. Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode, Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write-up of this episode. By doing this, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. Tell me about these mosquitoes because what? (laughs) They're on the underground. Do I need to start wearing insect repellent on the Northern Line? So there's this woman called Dr. Kate Byrne, and she was doing some research on mosquitoes, and she discovered this population living on the London Underground. She did some research on them because she thought, this is odd, they don't look like the surface mosquitoes, and they're not behaving like the surface mosquitoes. Um, And so she did some genetic research, um, and it's her view that they are a distinct species that must have come down um, from above and then evolved underground in the London Underground. That's mad. One of the most astonishing things is that she discovered that they differed genetically depending on what line you were looking at. So so she found... Oh, this could be such a fun game. (laughs) Central line mosquitoes would have to be like... They got really high body temperatures. (laughs) This is very London-centric. Anywhere on the London underground is roasting, isn't it? 
But they found mosquitoes that were on the same line were more genetically similar than ones that were geographically much closer, but on a different line. So they're clearly not capable of changing <laughs> lines midway, you know? A lot of people aren't. A lot of people aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, you've got that nice, like, seamless interchange on... Um, Ah, there's a few of them, aren't there? But there's, I think there's one at Finsbury Park, um, Oxford Circus. You can jump yeah. from the Victoria Line to the Bakerloo nice and easily. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but the Just mosquitoes, no, they've not mastered it, no. They could do it at Warren Street. <laughs> Can't you do it at Warren Street, change from the Northern Line straight to the Victoria Line? Oh, yeah, you can. That's a good one. I like that Just one. Just straight well, on the <laughs> other side of the platform. Come on, yeah. That's it. We're doing some nice tips for people coming from outside London and, and riding yeah, the underground the, 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 This bit of advice is not just for mosquitoes, guys. These are for n Londoners and non-Londoners alike. <laughs> but was there any kind of sense of when this would have happened? Is she able to know that? Or like when they would have started coming down? Or is that kind of impossible to tell? I don't think so. But obviously, we know how old the London Underground is. Um, don't ask me though, because I haven't got the figure on the tip of my tongue. But <laughs> what, how old the underground so, yeah. is? Yes. Do you know how old the underground is? I remember seeing posters up not long ago about it being 150 years. That sounds about right, doesn't it? So we'll, we'll go with about 150 <laughs> we'll go with years, at least 150 years. So yeah, that I mean, maybe maybe they went down just as as the underground as was being dug. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> could have been during the war. Maybe could have been, been during the war. Oh. Could have been. The possibilities. Um, but they can actually survive for quite a long time without a blood meal. Um, I found out that Kate actually fed hers herself. Um, and I I had to ask her exactly what she meant by that. And yes, she did let them out and let them suck her blood and then put them back in their little enclosure. <laughs> did she? What <laughs> <laughs> in the name of science. It's, yeah, it's just a, it's a connection with your animal that you just, you've really got to be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I know it's a mosquito. It's very small. Good on Kate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Good on Kate. <laughs> um, so with urban and city wildlife, and I mean, now more than ever, we're trying to get people for a plethora of reasons to connect with nature more, like, you know, mm -hmm. for whether it's to benefit ourselves and to benefit animals and to benefit the planet as a whole. But how can we do that in our cities? Because I still feel like even though you and I know exactly if, if you were going to go out for the day and you're like, I need to connect with nature today and the same myself, I know exactly where I'm going to go, what I'm going to do. But there's still so many people in our cities not even in London, Liverpool, Manchester, that just don't know where to start. How would you advise to do that? At the back of my book, I have a handy manifesto for urban wildlife where I've kind of summarised what I think are the key things that people can do. And one of the biggest things, so obviously a lot of us don't have gardens living in urban environments, but a lot of us do. And if we do have gardens, we can become messier gardeners. Yes. <laughs> Let things grow, stop mowing, don't weed as much, allow some self-seeded plants to grow. There's a section in my book where I talk about weeds and how actually we could see them as spontaneous plants yeah. um, and not weeds at all. A weed is just a plant out of place. So um, I've decided that the dandelions on my lawn aren't out of place at all. I love them and I leave them there. So um, that's one key thing that we can do. Be a bit messier and, you know, leave log piles, 
uh, dead hedges, just let stuff grow. Um, nice. So that's an easy one. Do less. <laughs> yeah, do not literally do nothing. <laughs> and get rid of all fake grass. Burn it with fire. Yes. Well, yes. don't buy it in the first place, but if you have bought it, get rid. It's horrible, evil stuff. It kills everything beneath it. It stops birds from feeding. Um, I don't think I need to tell this audience this, but no. it's. <laughs> but you know, if we could all I'd just still go love out, if there was one person listening again. Ah. <laughs> but if we can you know go out and spread the message far and wide to anyone we see with fake grass burn it with fire get rid of it yeah, get rid of it not needed not i was going to say get it in the sea but obviously don't get it in but the don't sea. absolutely that is, do not that put is it in the expression. sea do not put it in the sea to be as clear. an expression get it in the sea but don't ever physically put it in the no, sea no it is plastic please do not um <laughs> <laughs> That's the last thing we need. Um, and then <laughs> and then um, add water. So um, we have lost so many ponds. I um, went out with this amazing woman called Emily from um, Frog Life, uh, which is an amazing charity. And she goes around creating ponds. Um, and it's such a brilliant thing to do. Um, even a small tub pond. Well, like gor- gorilla ponding. Uh, well, I think she has permission. <laughs> oh, no, I was, I was hoping she didn't. I was, I was hoping no, she was no. in the night and quickly digging a hole in the... <laughs> that would be brilliant, wouldn't it? That would be epic, yeah. I mean, do that, sure. Do it. But <laughs> <laughs> even, even a small tub pond. So I've got a really, really small garden, but I've got um, a half uh, wine barrel that I filled with water. Yeah, that's um, cool. As long as just make sure that there's some kind of way of things getting in and out through plants or pebbles or some kind of slope so things don't fall in and drown, obviously. Doing that can have a huge, huge difference, especially in weather like this hideous heat wave that we're experiencing or you're experiencing. I'm, I'm okay at the moment. <laughs> I'm suffering. <laughs> I will be suffering when I go back to London in a few days' time. Um, but yeah, so it creates a place for birds to drink. I see birds drinking in mine, bees drinking. I've had dragonflies breathe in there i've never even seen dragonflies in my garden before and if it's slightly larger you can get amphibians as well it's just incredible this they say i guess it's that classic build it and they will come it's incredible the speed at which things will find and colonize if you create a pond my neighbor uh, i live in between camden and king's cross so super urban environment he created a pond and i think within a year to 18 months it was full of newts so it is amazing how things will come along and find it. One of my customers' doorsteps the other day, I got on, I was collecting their dog and they've not got any water in their front garden. It's, I would say, 60% patio with nice like plants in the middle, lavenders and stuff. And then there was just a f- frog there. And I was like, <laughs> I, like the Where's voles, I'm like, this isn't for you, but why are you here? And they're like, oh yeah, <laughs> we get them all the time when we're watering. I'm like, what, where, yeah. but where? But I don't, yeah. it's amazing. It's lovely. It's nice. um, and then, of course, urban areas are a huge risk of getting built on. And anything we can do to mitigate that is super important. So creating new green spaces. Um, we're getting an extension on the back of our house at the moment, obviously losing a bit of our garden to do that. So we're putting a green roof on top, which is going to have wildflowers. I'm hoping that what we're going to put there is actually going to be better because it's taking over a chunk of our patio as well. So I'm hoping it will actually be better for wildlife than, than what we've had before. So there are these spaces in different planes within the city that we can do so much more with. And then using our voices locally and I guess nationally as well, but particularly in your local community. So, you know, campaigning to keep green spaces green, create new ones, that sort of thing. And obviously 
creating green corridors wherever possible as well to link the fragments of habitat. So actually Glasgow Council is a really good example of this because they're trying to create more and more green corridors so that the water voles can disperse. Um, and if they can disperse, perhaps they won't be quite so concentrated and um, they'll be able to retain a few football pitches for the local kids as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The other thing I was going to say is about with, with a city, it's very, because you said at the beginning with the hustle and the bustle and everything's moving quick and everyone's getting trying to get from A to B. It's really easy, I find, in London, I'm sure other cities as well where people are living, to assume that people around you aren't connected to nature. But I, I would remind everyone as well, if you live in a city and you're struggling at times to connect with it or know how to, don't be afraid to like, if someone sees you, like when you were looking at the Peregrine Falcons, someone's going to stop and ask and don't be embarrassed about it. Like I lay down on the street to take photographs of wildflower growing and stuff like that. And, and as soon as you start talking about it, people are like, oh, I didn't know that. Or, oh, that's interesting. Or, or like, it, it helps you feel better about it as well. And it's a, it's a really nice way. I guess we forget there's communities in our cities because they're so big, but there are little local communities that love to do stuff just like in more rural places as well. You've just given a lot of advice but my last question to you is about giving advice, but it's a bit trickier. So it's the into the wild question that everyone dreads. But if you could pass on one bit of advice on to everyone on the planet regarding the natural world, Florence, what would you pass on? We've all been through a huge collective trauma with this global pandemic where we were all restricted to this kind of hyper-local area um, and we could only go out for one hour a day. But I think one of the positives is that during that time, uh, those people who maybe didn't notice nature around them previously, they start they started noticing it and people started saying to me, oh, I'm hearing birds all the time or I've been seeing things change in the springtime. And I think you know how birders have their patch. Sort of everybody suddenly had their patch. Um, <laughs> and um, and then those of us who were noticing it anyway were kind of doing that sort of close observation and looking at the little things around us and watching those changes in a way that perhaps we haven't before. So, you know, it's there. It's out there. Go out and find it. Be open to it. Absolutely. Well, Florence, thank you so much for being on Into the Wild. Um, it's always nice to chat to someone about city wildlife and especially a Londoner and especially a North Londoner as well, to, <laughs> to have you this side of the river um, and this high up. Good luck when you come back to a London. Brace yourself and dress appropriately. <laughs> I have sun cream. It is very warm and very dry up here at the moment. And to the listeners, the link to Florence's book, Wild City, can be found in the write-up of the episode. It's fantastic. I highly recommend giving it a read. And thank you so much for being on the show. Pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for having me. Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.